Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, it's um, a lot to unpack on today's show. I just want to let all of the listeners know we're doing it a slightly different format. It's just going to be the three of us. Yeah. We have the big Mueller report. We're going to dig into that um, for the bulk of the show. And then we have a Supreme Court development that we're going to hold to the end. That's kind of a fun one. Well, and I just want to say, I, it's the... Uh, I'm at the I'm at the hundredth episode. I'm at the Mueller report episode. I'm at the combination hundredth episode and Mueller report episode. Kind of an interesting confluence there for I us. I mean, for me, I was gonna make a really cheesy joke about how people have been waiting two years for this big momentous occasion. Our one hundredth. The hundredth episode. episode. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. We started it like you say. It was about two years ago, and then the Mueller case started about a month after we launched oh, the yeah. show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you know we've nodded to it here and there. It's sort of been like the you know, biggest ongoing legal development, pseudo legal development right. Right. in national news. Uh, now it's time to talk about. Well, it, and so. what and what I think what, what's an interesting point to talk about before we get into it is sort of what you said that we've you know we've hit on it, we've lightly tried to hit on it, but it's so inherently like a political story. Yeah, and that's Just not really our as, bag. So. Right, and we and we try to keep you know both here at Law Three Hundred and Sixty, but also here on the show, we try to keep like to our more to our wheelhouse, which is. Mm-hmm. You know the the nerdy legal side of things less so than like the you know how this will play out in the political sphere. Yeah, definitely. And as we were putting together today's show, I thought it was super interesting. Some of the thoughts that were going through my head as I was like trying to find the legally we all were trying to find the legally angles here. Yeah, and it you know it makes you think about like how unique this moment is because this is like it is a legal investigation, it is a right. criminal investigation. Sure. And as we'll get to, the the report doesn't recommend any criminal charges. It yeah. doesn't so it it sort of it it's inherently a thing where the the remedies for this thing that should be very legal it like are They're all political. Are political. And yeah. how does that play out in the impeachment sphere? How does that play out in terms of electoral politics? Mm-hmm. But I actually think that's one of the reasons I'm pretty excited to talk about it with you guys today that, you know, like most Americans. I watched a bunch of coverage of this yesterday, um, read a bunch of articles from other outlets, but also our own. And it's interesting to see um, some of the more straight up legal parts of it. And right. that's exactly what we're going to do. And we didn't we didn't know how much we would have to talk about in that regard, because we, we, what I guess it was like three weeks ago or something that Barr had the report in hand. Yep. And right. Like, well, maybe eventually we'll see it. It'll be heavily redacted. It's like, who knows how much right. sort of legal theorem like, what or whatever there is to even, to even parse. But it turns out there's a lot. Right. So, so, can, yeah. so let's let's sort of set the table on, you know, what the like what happened. So, yeah. I mean. As we mentioned, it th- this started back in 2017. Uh, Mueller was appointed, and after two years of lots of speculation and silence from the Mueller team, um, we got the report on Thursday. Yeah, um, a, a redacted report after the DOJ had had redacted it. Um, the report was more than 400 pages long, and the one conclusive thing that we can really say is that it found that the Russian government did indeed interfere in the 2016 election. They yeah. did so to the benefit of. President Trump, um, the, the it mainly happened through two different buckets: the the uh, campaign to hack into Democratic servers to find materials that then could be released in an embarrassing way, and also a campaign of sort of covert uh, social media manipulation. Yeah, um, the report didn't find any sort of criminal conspiracy between the Trump campaign and those Russian efforts. Yeah, um, but it did 
it did paint a pretty detailed picture of the interactions between the Trump campaign, a lot of outreach from Russian operatives to the campaign, um, an eagerness, a sort of receptiveness to to be reached out to yeah. by the campaign. There was more than like a light flirtation going exactly. on. Exactly. And, and at the very least, they never reached out to the FBI when yeah. when any of this stuff happened. Um, and then finally, as we're going to as Alex is going to deep dive on um it, there was this whole second part of the the yeah. report about the way that the president potentially obstructed justice they, they yeah. did not find enough evidence to support such a charge but um it's a pretty murky picture and and like with the other stuff it's not clearly one way yeah or the other um before we get into it everyone should go to law360.com check out all of our awesome coverage yeah, a lot um, of good stuff yeah i mean like stewart was talking about the uh the donald trump jr campaign finance right. angle of it uh, mike McInerney in dc was talking about all the political sort of angles um jody talked about the way that obstruction of justice has to do with intent and yeah we'll, we'll get into that um, yeah, a little bit andrew strickler wrote a really good thing about don mcgann which which, which... <laughs> i loved and so i'm going to talk about that yeah, a we'll lot that. more on today's show um kelsey yeah. wrote a great thing about the social media aspect from from her sort of telecom beat and um Ben Ben Kochman wrote a really good story about like the the hacking and and all that stuff. So yeah. it is um go check out we have we have a ton of really good coverage. If it's you're interested good. in the more nerdy legal sort of minutia angles of this, we have a ton of it. So yeah. go check it out. Um but like I said, Alex, break down the the get us get us into sort of that second volume of yeah. the report. Um yeah, like I say, the you ran down sort of the the Russia stuff in the beginning of the report has it's a lot of sort of backroom intrigue, political calculation and all that. There's some interesting legalese there when like Mueller goes on to a couple different tangents about like everybody's been talking about collusion. Right. What is collusion? Like there's no there's no crime that says like collusion right. is conspiracy. illegal in criminal laws. It's a conspiracy. So that's interesting. But yes, um the sort of star of the show for our purposes is the whole second half of the report, which is about whether the Trump, uh, President Trump, uh, or people in his orbit obstructed justice uh, once the investigation began, mm-hmm. or when it became clear that there was going to be some kind of investigation into the Russia angle. Um, and the bottom line is, as you have already uh, said, Bill, Mueller basically chose to do nothing, um, and that is not for lack of investigation. Like I said, right. this this part of the report's about two hundred and fifty pages long, and he mm-hmm. sort of walks through. Um, the case for and against obstruction. Um, but the the, ba- the baseline quote that he arrives at um, is this. The evidence we obtained about the president's actions and intent presents difficult issues that would need to be resolved if we were making a traditional prosecutorial judgment. We'll get to why he's not doing that in a second. At the same time, if we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. So, uh, okay, well, I mean, to break that down the most simply, they're basically he uh, the Mueller report and the Mueller team's basically saying, uh, if we wanted if we could say the president did nothing, we would say that, but we can't. Right. But now we also can't take the next step to issue indictments or do anything else. Uh, and I have to say, without um, the fact that there are no indictments issued and no action taken either way, um, it kind of makes this 
like maybe the world's most interesting sort of like academic paper yeah. about the way <laughs> right. obstruction works and might work in certain contexts. Um, well, what, why would why did Mueller answer it that way? I think we need yeah, to break that's, down. That's important. Well, I mean, basically, for the purposes of the investigation, the Mueller team identified eleven different instances, actions that that Trump and the administration took that would maybe pass the smell test of obstruction that mm-hmm. might have been obstruction of justice. Right. And then he sort of goes through all of those incidents and sort of puts them through the lens of what he understands to be obstruction of justice. And that, not to get too into the weeds, but that is basically a three-pronged test where you examine the act itself and whether or not it, it is obstructive in nature, Okay. Uh, whether the act has a nexus to an ongoing judicial or legal proceeding, Yeah. Um, and then, of course, intent, whether you intended to actually obstruct. So all of these sort of little episodes, uh, you know, uh, moments uh, moments in history are filtered through this lens. Right. And you have to tick all three of those boxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he walks through it in a very methodical way. Um, we don't have time to obviously go through each of them, but they range from, you know, firing FBI Director James Comey to um, the sort of... Uh, Various moves to try and install Trump loyalists to oversee the investigation, to um, directing uh, Don McGahn to remove Robert Mueller, uh, which we'll discuss a little bit later. Um, But yeah, those are the sort of that that's that 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 is the framework through which he looked to. to I think it's really helpful for people to understand that framework. And and like you said, there were 11 different things that that Mueller fully examined. Could we break down one of them yeah. and sort of get into how the analysis worked? The main question I had, just as an observer of the story for the last two years, um, was specifically about the firing of James Comey. Um, yeah. Comey took uh, extensive notes, um, shared them with the Mueller probe um, team, and basically talked about his interactions with Trump and how Trump kind of asked Comey for loyalty. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't exactly give that to him. That is not the nature of the director of the FBI's right. job. And people probably really remember that whole conversation about loyalty because Comey also testified to Congress mm-hmm. about that interaction. Yeah. Um, so anyway, just to refresh you, it, he fired Comey in May of 2017 after those interactions and Trump publicly said that he did that because he thought Comey was doing a bad job. Um, he just said he cited he said he bungled the Hillary Clinton email observer investigation, right. and he said, uh, you know, you're fired. And it, it, as Mueller notes in the in the report, he's legally like the president obviously has the constitutional power to fire the FBI director. Right. The issue here is the context, of course, about why and whether firing him is an obstructive act. Um, Mueller fully refutes Trump's stated reason for firing Comey for incompetence, basically. I mean, he says um, that that is just not supported by the evidence. uh, And in fact, that some of the evidence indicates that the president wanted to protect himself from an investigation into his campaign. But so if if it you know, we have to you have to run through this 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 three prong test that you Mm -hmm. explained. But, you know, that sounds close to something that I think a lot of people would think was was obstruction of justice. Mm-hmm. So walk us through why, you know, why why that didn't didn't make it for for yeah. Mueller. The report is is full of moments like that. There there the Comey thing which I just laid out, but also um there there are other instances where um the report basically says Trump may well have committed obstruction of justice had anybody listened to him. Like he he asked <laughs> right. McGahn 
to remove Mueller. McGahn declined this, uh, oh, just kind of obviously. I'm going to get into We're a lot get there. of that in a minute. But anyway, the, the, the point is there are lots of things, um, there are lots of moments in the report where Mueller comes very close to saying this is evidence enough to bring um, an obstruction charge, but he doesn't. And the reason for that is because he cites um, a sort of much discussed memorandum from the Office of Legal Counsel within yeah. the Justice Department. Um, that basically says that a sitting president cannot and should not be indicted while he is president. And Mueller, um, he's not necessarily obligated to, but he takes that opinion as gospel. This is from the report. We recognized that a federal criminal accusation against a sitting president would place burdens on the president's capacity to govern and potentially preempt constitutional processes for addressing presidential misconduct. But so does that mean, I mean, are they taking that to the to the extent that it means that Trump is just immune for whatever he does or or No, I mean the they they take they take as gospel as I say that he can't be indicted while he's a sitting president. But Mueller makes clear that there is some mechanism for him to be held accountable. Um, it's a job for Congress. Congress right. is the only one who can who can. They, we already know that Congress is the only one who can remove a president. They are basically linking the idea of indicting a president with that sort of same idea, same theorem. Um, but the way that um, he makes that case is he sort of forcefully pushes back against a statement. Um, from Attorney General William Barr, William Barr, who gave a press conference before the report was published, he said, he's like, I disagree with some of the special counsel's um, formulations or theories about obstruction of justice, which is very interesting to yeah. hear. Um, basically, Barr, several months ago, said it's basically impossible for the president to commit obstruction of justice because right. as the chief executive, he oversees federal law enforcement, and therefore yeah. uh, it would be impossible for him to obstruct justice because he is, I don't know, justice personified or something. He's David Justice, the baseball uh, player. Yeah, that's yeah, what he is. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, but uh, Mueller doesn't really buy that. And he says um, in what a lot of pundits and a lot of legal scholars saw as a sort of call to Congress, um, he said, the conclusion that Congress may apply the obstruction laws to the president's corrupt exercise of the powers of office accords with our constitutional system of checks and balances and the principle that no person is above the law. Um, so a lot of people saw that as, I mean, if you were a big time Trump critic, people would say like that is a impeachment referral as far as I'm concerned, like go and figure this out for yourselves, lawmakers. But um, sort of in the abstract, if we're looking at the Mueller reports case on obstruction, he basically is saying his hands are tied by this right. memo. There's lots of different circumstances where the Trump administration did things that were certainly unusual, perhaps approaching criminal, but it's not for me, the special counsel, to be able to indict him as I sit here. Um, and that's sort of where we stand. It was very interesting. Yeah, and that led to a lot of the coverage out there being about what Congress should do next, yeah. what next steps should be taken. Um, yeah. We've already said we're going we're gonna to let those political questions be part of other media sure. coverage. Yeah. But another thing that sort of ate up lots of headlines was how the report basically laid bare that the White House has been very dysfunctional. Yeah, it a was a lot <laughs> of infighting and problems. Right. Yeah. Um, nothing made that more apparent than all of the sections about former White House counsel and Jones Day attorney Don McGahn. Yeah. So that's the part I want to dig into here. I feel like it's Right in the wheelhouse of what our audience uh, would want to hear about, because it's about an attorney. Yeah, uh, but but remind us who Don McGahn for the people yeah, who don't remember. Yeah, I mean, um, so he's a prominent attorney. He worked 
before he worked for Trump, he was at Jones Day and he's now returned there. He acted first as the campaign counsel during Trump's campaign in 2016. Mm -hmm. Then he became White House counsel. He stayed all the way until this past October. So Mm -hmm. he's been there for a while. Um, He was a lot of people know him as being instrumental to selecting and vetting Supreme Court justices. So Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, he had a a heavy hand in, in getting them seated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, um, okay, so, and, and, and actually, I'm old enough to remember, I think we even talked about it in the early stages of planning the show, I'm old enough to remember when, like, who was going to get the White House counsel job, like, which which big law lawyer was going to get it, like, a couple people were in the running, McGahn emerged, and it yeah. was like, oh, he won the thing, and how did that turn out for him? What kind of picture well, does this paint as know, his job as White House counsel? The big takeaway with regards to McGahn and Trump is that their relationship was just toxic. There's really no other word that sums it up better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, According to the report, Trump repeatedly tried to bully McGahn into getting Mueller fired. Yes. So this ties into what you were talking about, Alex. A lot of these things about what was potentially obstruction, these are some of those 11 buckets. Yeah, Um, definitely. But I want to run through some of the actual examples because the stories are just astounding, guys. I mean, they're, they're sort of crazy sets of facts the Mueller, yeah the Mueller report is like sorry to interrupt you the, the Mueller report is like on par with like all the explosive like books like the the, the wolf book and the woodward yes, book because it's like much. this is just like a very clinical look at what it's like to work in the building and it also um they're all laid out like stories so yeah. it was very interesting to read yesterday so let me get into the first one that sort of sets the tone and is a good example here mm-hmm Think back to the summer of 2017. The Washington Post put out a pretty explosive story saying that Mueller was investigating whether Trump obstructed justice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At that time, people weren't sure if that was going on. Yeah. Trump was mad. Um, he issued essentially a tweet storm. It was one of the first times that he started calling the Mueller probe a witch hunt yeah, and the, did all of that yeah. kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So from Camp David, the president called Don McGahn twice at his house, and he was directing him to tell the deputy attorney general... Rod Rosenstein, that Mueller had conflicts of interest and, quote, had to go. Yeah, he had to go. That's kind of the the magic bullet phrase in here. Yeah. So McGahn pushed back. I mean, he said that was a bad idea. Um, And he described himself in testimony to Mueller as being, quote, trapped after he refused that order. And he concluded he had to resign. He decided, you know, he's told the president no. He thinks he has to resign. Mm-hmm. He went so far as to he called his personal attorney, told him what was going on, drove to the White House and packed up his office. He prepped a resignation letter. And then he told the chief of staff at the time, that was back when Reince Priebus was still there, uh-huh. that the president ha- had asked him to, quote, do crazy shit. <laughs> I like I like that we're breaking out the bleep button. It's gonna come out come out later in the show too. Um, you know, it's always it's always a good sign when um, a, a lawyer is calling their own lawyer. Um, yeah, you know, you know things have gone yeah. awry. Yeah. Um, he was at that time persuaded by Reince Priebus and also Steve Bannon to stay. He is like a, not leave. McGann is like a Job figure in this report. It's like really like he's like I'm yeah. trying to leave. They I made know. me stay, and now I'm back. And, and there's now, and there's stuff. There's more. There's a lot more. So I want to run through basically two other incidents that I think are very telling. Uh Um, So in January of last year, the New York Times reported about Trump's attempt to have Mueller fired and how McGahn had refused. The president, again, was very angry about this. He called it fake news. He said that publicly. He told other White House staffers that McGahn was the leak of the story to New York Times. Mm -hmm. And if you recall, Trump has, and the White House in general, has very vociferously called out leakers within their ranks and been very Mm -hmm. mad about it. So he 
said that McGann was the leak and told other staffers that McGann did it to, quote, make himself look good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he called McGann a liar. He then decided to push McGann to write a letter saying he'd never been ordered to fire Mueller. Oh, yeah. Great. <laughs> McGann refused. I mean, that's the whole story is of McGann refusing things. Yeah. McGann refused. He told Trump um, in a really what's described as a pretty tense, like face to face meeting with the president yeah. that the time story was basically accurate, that there was nothing to refute there. All of it was true. Yeah. He's like, I'm not going to be signing false affidavits or anything right. on your on, on the White House letterhead or right. anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, their relationship just, as you can see, was yeah. it was just really rough. Um, well, and Trump was also... Quite. I mean, he was alarmed by sort of basic, uh, uh, like, like McGann's basic like way of approaching yeah. his job too. That was the other thing. <laughs> this is one that I actually think is just very funny. Yeah. But before I tell this funny one, I just want to say for all the lawyers listening, you think you have tough clients. <laughs> like this is like the ultimate That's personification true. of a very powerful client who's also just seems very difficult to to manage. Yeah. yeah. Um. So here's one that is just a doozy. Um. Trump asked McGahn about his meetings with the Mueller investigators and the notes McGahn had been taking in meetings in the Oval Office. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. The president said this. Why do you take notes? Lawyers don't take notes. I never had a lawyer who took notes. Amazing. If I know Absolutely one thing, amazing if I know quote. one thing about lawyers, it's that they're not concerned about details. <laughs> they're not concerned about <laughs> records or anything like that. Not look. They just don't take notes, Bill. Right. I just don't shoot them from the hip. That's law. That's lawyer. So, the the even better part for me. That's a really funny quote. But the better part for me was McGann's answer. He, uh, according to the Mueller report, told the president he kept notes because he is quote a real lawyer. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> then he went on to have to explain that notes create a record, and records <laughs> are not always a bad thing. So yeah, it getting just a seems picture like... of McGann like explaining like what notes are and why they <laughs> right. matter to Trump is really yeah. something. Trump also in that in that. Exchange said he he mentioned Roy Cohn, who was like one of his old lawyers, right. and he never he took said, notes. Never took notes. Roy Cohn was later like disbarred for ethical. Well, uh, and like, yeah. Roy Cohn was the was the, the attorney for uh, for Joseph McCarthy. Yeah, is the, is yes. the famous sort of lineage here. Yeah. Great stuff. Right. I mean, you know, there are different kinds of lawyers in the world. Some take notes and some don't. So where do we come out on McGann? Like, I mean, as a, he was, he was obviously pretty cooperative with the probe. Um, he was. And so, like, I it, think that's a really interesting question. It's one that Andrew Strickler yeah. really dug into. He's our senior legal ethics reporter, so of course, a lot of ethics issues to mm-hmm. unpack here. Um, and the report card from McGann is really pretty positive. Um, he stands out as you're reading the Mueller report for his efforts to stand up to Trump and try to cut off Trump's impulse to uh, potentially interfere with the special counsel investigation. Right. So, if it, if, sorry to interrupt. You. No, if any, well, if any, if there's anything that comes away from this, it's that McGahn comes off pretty good. Yeah. Like the, you know. Yeah. I mean, ethics experts that Andrew talked to um, pointed out a few things. McGahn never broke the law himself. He advised what, by any account, is an unpredictable client to not break the law. He was honest with the special counsel and cooperated there. So he's on solid ethical ground. Yeah. There there were some people that have said, even before the Mueller report, that McGahn stayed around too long. um, And as Trump's attorney was maybe um, seen as complicit in sort of the things Trump was pushing to do. But one legal ethics expert told Andrew that, a lot of attorneys are asked to do crazy things. Sure. The successful attorneys are the ones that just don't do it. <laughs> well, he was very good at that. In this yeah, regard, and I think, he was kind of um, just, he was good at like parrying and dodging away. If you're looking for legal lessons here, I think you can take McGann as an example of 
how to take a really fraught relationship and try to make the most of it and stay on the right side of your ethics there. All right. Well, we're we're just about out of time for the segment, but I feel like we I feel like we got into some of the really good sort of legally angles here. And as as we said at, up top, it's there's a lot of stuff that's going to play out outside of our purview. Right. The, there's a lot of the you know how things are going to go in Congress, what this means in terms of political results. Um, mm-hmm. But at least for now, we're we're through sort of the you know. One one big legal chapter, and we're on to something else, whatever else is lying ahead. Yeah. Normally, we end our show with something offbeat. Bill, I know you have one that sort of straddles the line of big news, but has also got some funny moments in it, too. Yeah, I alluded earlier that we might break out the bleep button again. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think I think we're going to have to. Sort of given, unavoidable here. Given a case that was before the Supreme Court this week about profanity. Um, the justices heard arguments on Monday in this, um, you know, it's sort of a, it's a trademark case, but it's also a free speech case. It's about the idea of um, profane trademarks and whether or not the government can refuse to register them because they are um, profane. So yeah. so I love this case and know all about it, but I want the listeners to know too. Tell us the the basics of what's going on here. Um, so the facts of the case, the, there's this guy named Eric Brunetti um, and he, back in the 1990s in California, he launched this sort of streetwear skateboarding brand called Fucked. Bleep button. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, that is for the listener spelled F U C T. Yeah. Um, He's so, being coy there. Yeah. He it, is. It sounds like something else and it right. looks like a different thing. Yeah. So Brunetti was refused a trademark registration on that name because there's this weird old rule under the Federal Lanham Act, the Trademark Act, um, that says the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office can't register trademarks that are either scandalous or immoral. Hmm. Which yes. If it just gives sounds you the silly vapors. to say out loud. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you've if you've fainted when you see the application, um, some obscure governmental body deciding what's scandalous and yes. immoral is exactly. definitely and, uh, and it, so. He argued that this that this rule yeah. was unconstitutional. Which of course, he argued it, that it just sounds a little unconstitutional. Well, um, also, you know, there was a big boost in uh, recent years because there was a pretty similar case that involved, or at least implicated, the Washington Redskins. Exactly. So, um, in that case, there was this other provision um, under the law that banned uh, trademarks that were disparaging, yeah, racist terms, things that that were offensive towards toward people. Um, Back in 2017, that provision was struck down by the Supreme Court. They ruled that it was a discrimination based on a person's viewpoint. Yeah. Um, that was a big ruling. This little band called The Slants, they're a bunch of Asian-American guys. Um, they chose the name The Slants to reappropriate their name. They had been refused the trademark on their name on the idea that it was offensive to Asian-Americans. Yeah. That ruling was a win for them. But as Amber said, it was also a big win for the Washington Redskins because many people will remember back in 2014, they also had their trademarks revoked because they were racist toward Native Americans. So yeah. um, the Supreme Court struck down that rule, said that's unconstitutional. You can't, you can't mm-hmm. ban those kind of trademarks. And I remember at the time, Bill, you and I talked a lot about how, oh, well, scandalous and immoral, I mean, that, that'll go too, because it just seems so similar. Exactly. It seems like it would fall under that that ruling, and that 
argument was lent credence when six months after the ruling, a lower appeals court also struck down the, the ban on scandalous words. They said this is also a violation of the of the First Amendment because you're refusing to give someone the, the value of a trademark registration purely based on the, the you know, the, the what they're saying. Yeah. What I mean, I didn't when I when I was reading about this and I've talked to you about this, it's like hard to triangulate like exactly what the big difference is between like, oh, we, we know disparaging marks. Uh, or like discriminating against disparaging marks are bad, but then scandalous and immoral is like a different bucket. What are the arguments here? Like what's actually being made? Yeah. So um, the USPTO appealed that lower court ruling that struck yeah. down sca- the scandalous ban um, because they view it as they view these as two different things. The They say the Supreme Court struck down the rule against racist trademarks because it it discriminated based on your viewpoint, which is a very, very egregious sort of species of First Amendment violation. Right. Mm-hmm. They say that the um, the ban on profanity and sexual words, these, these scandalous trademarks, they say that's something a little bit more. They say it's viewpoint neutral, that it doesn't have to do with your views. It's just this like, yes, it does discriminate. It does look at what you're saying. So mm-hmm. that's a content discrimination. But it doesn't get into this idea of like. I'm stopping you based on your opinion. Right. right. So like, it's just this across yeah. the board. We know f***ed is like a dirty word. Right. It's, and a, it's an across the board uh, it, decency standard. Sure. You know, yeah. that, that okay. doesn't have to do with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. It has to do with just the way that you're saying it would yeah. be how USPTO would say. Bernetti obviously feels differently. Yeah. I mean, he basically makes the argument of like, no, no, these are the same guys. Yes. He says that, look, if I'm saying something profane, that's a viewpoint that the majority of Americans view like that, that's, you know, it, it's inherently viewpoint. You're you're pushing back on something that the majority has deigned as mainstream speech. Right. Yeah. And you are speaking in another way. And that's a viewpoint. And and that, that you just the Supreme Court has to strike this down under the precedent of the of the Redskins case. Okay. Well, um, the thing I want to get into while we're talking about this is uh, how the arguments themselves went, because. They were pretty interesting. There's a lot, there's a lot of inherent fun here in will the justices say the dirty words? <laughs> I was gonna say that's the most fun thing. Sure. It's funny you see a lot of the mainstream publications because it's I mean it's very dense like First Amendment and trade. Oh yeah, law. I mean we're talking about viewpoint neutral and <laughs> yeah, viewpoint exactly. not yeah. completely. So you saw a lot of the publications being like we didn't get to hear Ruth Bader Ginsburg say f. Yeah. Like, this, <laughs> this really re- just it's too a wash. Bad. Too um, bad. But um, no, I mean. G- Based on the precedent, you would think that the USPTO coming into court two years later after this court just struck down this other rule, coming back in and sort of going to the mat for this very similar rule, you'd think they would face tough questioning. And they did, um, maybe not the way that we thought they were going to. Um, the justices did question the idea of, um, you know, this this distinction between viewpoint and and viewpoint neutral versus viewpoint discrimination. Yeah. But what they really hammered the government on was the idea of just how squishy and vague this rule is. That if, yeah. you know, how do you define what is scandalous? It's a subjective right. question that's so different than all the other questions that the that the USPTO is and dealing with. And it also changes they... over time. Like, the oh, right. yeah, subjective ideas evolve on exactly that? and and you know it's a that's one of the most common criticisms of these rules that lots of these of curse words and other offensive words have been registered and it's so inconsistent w- what the USPTO will do so that's another way that they could come that the justices could strike this down they could say this is unconstitutionally vague you are you know you, you wrote this squishy law that that no one really knows how it operates and um so that was a real big thing they did they they got on um the uh, the attorney for Brunetti a little bit asking, you know, 
is there collateral damage here? If we rule that this is a First Amendment violation, can um, you know the bus company in Indiana not prevent like have to let people write curse words on bus advertisements, yeah, stuff right. like that? And you know there was tough questioning, and I think based on the way that this went, you could see them distinguishing between the yeah. two the two rules. But my gut sense, um, my maybe not so hot take, is that they're going to strike this down just like they struck down the last rule. I love ending it there with like, we so rarely get to have the, here's what I think the Supreme Court's going to do. I feel pretty good about that (laughs) answer. I feel fine about it. (laughs) Um, So thanks for bringing that one, Bill. And thanks for the whole show. See you again next week, guys. And Alex, thanks a lot. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and a lot of great contributing reporters on all of our Mueller coverage. Andrew Strickler, Jody Godoy, Stuart Bishop, Michael McInerney, Kelsey Griffiths, and Ben Kochman. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glassman. We'd love for you to hit subscribe wherever you're listening to the show right now and leave us a written review. It really helps other people find Pro Se. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and join us again next week.